But we have been uh, studying, as you know, if you've been here the last, what, four months or something like that, we've been talking about something called the kingdom of God, which is a huge part of uh, what Jesus was preaching in uh, the New Testament and a huge part of our lives. And we have defined the kingdom of God as God's rule over God's people in God's place. And I'm sure you've now you've heard that about 18 times. I'm, probably next week I'll actually make you recite it, but that's what we've defined it as. And we have been, over the last couple of weeks, we've kind of stepped back and we've been taking a look at what you might call some, some big picture issues, what I am called kingdom, I'm calling kingdom perspectives. Kingdom perspectives. Three weeks ago, we asked a question of whether God's kingdom was something that was visible that we could see or was it something invisible which primarily exists internally in the hearts of Jesus' followers? The next week we looked at the Old Testament ideas of kingdom and also the idea of the temple and we discovered how both of these things have gone mobile today. As God's people, followers of Jesus, we carry God's kingdom and God's presence, his temple really, with us wherever we go. And, and I want you to think of these things that we've been talking about kind of as puzzle pieces that are all going to kind of fit together uh, at the end of this. We're putting all these pieces together and eventually we're going to have a good understanding of the kingdom from all these different angles and try to piece things together. This week what I want to do, however, is I want to step back and take, if possible, even a wider angle on the kingdom. And I want to look at how you and I can relate the idea of God's kingdom to all of life how we can relate the idea of God's kingdom to all of life. Now that sounds like a pretty big promise, right? But, but hang with me. We know that when we come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we immediately become part of God's family. He adopts us into his family. And we also become part of, we become citizens of God's kingdom. And from that point on, we are called to serve that kingdom to work for the advance of that kingdom. In Jesus' words, to seek first his kingdom. And that's clearly a very important matter, which is why Jesus says to seek it first. And it should change the way that we live. Jesus describes seeking the kingdom at one point as putting your hand to the plow and not looking back. So when we come to Christ, when we enter the kingdom of God, that should represent a permanent life change for us. Life should not be the same after that moment. But you might ask, what does it look like to work for the kingdom? What does it look like to advance the kingdom? If I'm supposed to, to seek first his kingdom, does that mean that every single Christian is supposed to quit his job, sell his house, give up all his hobbies and pastimes, and go out on the road and preach the gospel 24-7? If that's what it means, then we're all in some trouble here, right? Well, you are, I'm not. No, just kidding. It, it, is, it is true <laughs> It is true that God calls some of his children to do some of these things. He does call some of us into what is often called vocational or full-time ministry, where we spend a greater part of our lives directly doing the work of the kingdom. That is something that, of course, has happened in my life, although I never, ever would have considered that thing possible when I was in school. And I want every young person who is here today, every young person who goes to First Alliance Church, to be open to the idea that God would call you into this kind of life. Not because it's the only way to serve God, because it's not, but because you want to obey Him 
in whatever he calls you to do, and he may call you to do that. He calls many people to do that. For that matter, I would like every retired person in this church to have the same attitude of a willingness to make radical changes when God gives you that newfound freedom in life. And to not be content maybe to sit and, you know, as John Piper calls it, knock a little white ball around for the rest of your life. And even for those of you who are in the midst of your careers, to be constantly open to God's leading because God doesn't typically do things according to our formula or according to our assumptions of how life is supposed to go. Sometimes he calls us to make some radical turns. At the same time, the fact remains that for the majority of Christians and for the majority of us here, most of life is spent doing other things than what we normally call kingdom work, right? And we're going to define kingdom work very specifically in a couple minutes. But most of life is spent doing other things. We need to go to work. We need to go to school, some of us. We need to care for our children, shop for groceries, keep our houses and yards up, pay the bills, drive our kids around, see the doctor, take a shower, get dressed, etc. And we also use some time for what we might call recreating, right? We, we, we socialize, we play, we, we relax sometimes. And honestly, uh, this is true for those of us who are in vocational ministry as well. In fact, I know a lot of our, of our uh, full-time international workers, our missionaries, I know some of them very well. And I know that they don't just preach the gospel 24-7. You need to know that in most of the countries, and the missionaries, we think of those are the ones who have really sold out for Jesus, right? But in most of the countries where they serve, I'll tell you something, it takes even longer to perform regular tasks like shopping and feeding your family and doing the laundry. So the question becomes, for all of us, how do activities like this fit in with seeking God's kingdom? These regular daily activities, are these just necessary evils that keep us from our 24-7 kingdom work? Or are they themselves kingdom work? Or is the truth maybe somewhere in between? Three weeks ago, we learned about a view of the kingdom that one author has called pleated pants kingdom, you might remember that, in which the kingdom is almost exclusively defined as being something that is internal in the hearts of Christians. And you've probably figured out over the last couple of weeks that I think that this view is the right place to start. But it needs to be adapted a little bit. And I will tell you this view can also be misapplied because we can think this way. You know what, if the kingdom is in here, if the kingdom is internal to my heart, that means it's with me wherever I go. So wherever I go, the kingdom is. Then I might conclude that everything I do in my life is therefore automatically kingdom work. One Christian author actually said this. He said that if we are asked, what are you doing for the kingdom of God? We might respond in one of these ways. I'm mowing the lawn. I'm washing the dishes. I'm making a puzzle with my three-year-old. I'm paying the bills. I'm composing a poem. I'm talking with my mother on the phone. I'm teaching a neighbor's child how to throw a ball. I'm writing the mayor. I'm preaching. And all those things he would consider to be automatically kingdom work. Now these are all very good things to do, right? Mowing the lawn is a good thing to do. I have been told by my wife on multiple occasions that doing the dishes is a very good thing to do if I want to stay alive any longer. No. <laughs> but are these things automatically kingdom work just because a kingdom person is doing them. If I'm mowing my lawn next week and my non-Christian neighbor is mowing his lawn at the same time, I could go over to him and I could say, hey, guess what? 
I'm doing kingdom work over here. And you're not. What would he say? He'd probably say, well, that's funny. I thought we were both just mowing the lawn. And you missed the spot, Titus, right? And he'd have a point, wouldn't he? It seems a little odd to baptize our day-to-day activities and automatically call them kingdom work just because we're kingdom people. But then again, it would also seem wrong to call them necessary evils or a distraction or somehow a waste of time. We sense that God is in these activities somewhere and there must be some sort of a way to fit that in with seeking the kingdom first. Let me try to give you some biblical shape for this issue by taking you to three foundational commandments in God's word. This is really, really big picture stuff, okay? When I say foundational commandments, I mean foundational. These are big ones, all right? These are huge. And I'm going to work backwards, starting right here in Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 16. And I'm going to read through the end of the book here. Matthew 28, 16. Jesus has come back from the dead. He's hanging out with his disciples. He's about to go back to heaven. It says, The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Most of you know this as the Great Commission. The Great Commission is Jesus' last marching orders to his followers before he left this earth. And I'm going to go ahead and say it right now. This is the definition of kingdom work right here. This is it. This is kingdom work. If the kingdom exists in the hearts of the followers of the king... And if, if they are carrying his presence into the world, and if kingdom growth is primarily about seeing new people come into the kingdom, and if the goal of the king himself is, as he said it was, to build his church so that the, the powers of hell cannot prevail against it, and if it's true, as we have argued that it's true, that if there is no church, then there is no kingdom, then this is the Bible's definitive kingdom advancing commandment right here. It's the Great Commission. And it is all of our responsibilities, not just missionaries and not just those 12 apostles and not just super Christians, but it's all of our responsibility to help carry the good news of Christ's atoning death and resurrection and the promise of forgiveness and new life to our neighborhoods and to the nations. That's all of our responsibility. And not just to evangelize, not just to make converts, but to make disciples. That's also all of our responsibility. And when we commit our efforts, our decisions, our prayers, our resources to obeying this commandment of Christ right here, to make disciples in all the world, both locally and globally, then and only then are we doing true kingdom work. Now that's going to sound very restrictive maybe, but remember this commandment is about more than just evangelism. Whenever you plug into the church's great mission to call people to Christ and build them up in Him, you are doing kingdom work and there are lots of ways to do that. If you set up chairs this morning or on Wednesday night, if you taught Sunday school this morning, if you poured coffee in the Welcome Center, if you gave in the offering, I would argue that you're doing kingdom work that you're doing kingdom work. But I'd also remind you that kingdom work doesn't just happen in this room. It happens mostly outside of regular church activities. Wherever and whenever 
You are involved in evangelism and discipleship in attempting to bring people into God's family or build them up in the faith. You are serving the kingdom. Remember from last week, your life is a temple. Your life is a place where people can come to meet God through Jesus Christ. You're that place. So wherever you go, you can do that kingdom work as people encounter God in Christ through you. So there's the kingdom commandment. It's the Great Commission. But let's go back and look briefly at another foundational commandment. Go back a few chapters in Matthew to chapter 22. Matthew 22, starting in verse 36. We won't talk a lot about this one. I'm going to include it for, just for completion's sake today. This is in, in the a week before Jesus dies, and, and there's people coming up to him, and they're testing him with certain questions, and this is getting toward the end of this time, and, 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 and someone comes up to him and says, a lawyer asks him, teacher, verse 36, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This one is often called the great commandment the great commandment. And it is, in fact, the greatest commandment in the entire Bible. Jesus here is quoting the Old Testament, and, and he starts with what the Jews called the Shema from Deuteronomy, the part about loving God with all that you are. And then he adds the second part about loving others, uh, and he quotes Leviticus when he does that. Now we're going to look a lot more at this particular commandment next week. What we'll find is that obeying this commandment to love God and love your neighbor does not necessarily mean we're always doing kingdom work, but as you can imagine, there's going to be a really crucial connection between the two. For now, I, I want to ask you to turn all the way back to the book of Genesis with me. Genesis chapter 1. And I want to look at the last of our big commandments for today, which is actually the first one that was given. Genesis chapter 1, and when you get there, you can go over to verse 27. Genesis 1, 27. It used to be easy to find Genesis because it was the first thing, but now there's all these notes and maps and everything, and so I know it takes a while. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. A lot of people assume that the first commandment that God ever gave to mankind was that one about the tree, the negative commandment, don't eat from this tree in the middle of the garden. But, but actually the first commandment that he gave was, was this one. And although it doesn't have quite as catchy a name as the other two, this one is often called the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate. This commandment, this was given before mankind's fall into sin, but it's never been revoked. It's about more than just, it says be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but it's about more than just having lots of kids and spreading out to more places. Specifically, that word subdue it carries with it the idea of making the earth useful for mankind. And the word have dominion involves taking control and establishing order. And note that right before this, we are told that the man and the woman were made in God's image. The idea behind this commandment here, and it's a big one, 
is that we are to bring God's image to bear throughout the world as his representatives. And so God's wisdom and intelligence, God's goodness and beauty, God's capacity for relationship and love, God's creativity. God wants these things declared and demonstrated throughout the entire earth. And human beings are unique in all of creation in our ability to reflect the character of God and the image of God in this way. And of course, God has built His order and His wisdom and His beauty into creation. The Bible says the heavens declare His glory. The earth and the stars are His handiwork. And He has given us Men and women, boys and girls, he's given us the ability and indeed the responsibility to discover these things in the earth that he has put here and to highlight them and to draw attention to them and to enjoy them and to make use of them. What this means is that science and technology and agriculture and manufacturing and construction and art, music, Literature, clothing design, child rearing, education, psychology, health care, mathematics, accounting, investing, cooking, machining, gardening, doing homework, and even sports and leisure to some extent are all part of fulfilling this mandate to make culture and to bring God's image to bear over all creation in a way that only human beings can do. And you can probably see how now we're getting into most of the stuff that you do on a daily basis, whether you're at work or at school or at home. And I obviously missed a few, okay? But, but you get the idea. Of course, one thing about this commandment, this cultural mandate, is that you don't have to be a Christian to obey it, right? So these things may not be necessarily kingdom work per se, but that doesn't mean that we are called to dismiss them or disregard them. In fact, it would be impossible to do that with a lot of them. But here's the question. Here's the important question for today. Is there a kingdom way to do these things? Can we live our lives in such a way that these normal human activities, these everyday responsibilities, what we call these secular pursuits, can they at least support the work of the kingdom and maybe even feed into the work of the kingdom and at times even become the work of the kingdom? Is that possible? And I would say the answer to that is yes. But how? How? How can my everyday mundane, Monday through Friday life plug into the kingdom of God? With the time we have left, I want to suggest to you seven ways. Okay, don't stress out. You're going to get out of here before 3 o'clock, I promise. <laughs> These are, these, are, these are going to go by very fast, all right? Seven ways you can add a kingdom edge to the way you live your everyday life. Seven ways you can make it more likely that when you obey God's mandate in Genesis 1, you can be supporting and at times even carrying out his great commission in Matthew chapter 28. So this is seven ways to keep the kingdom in view throughout all of life. Okay? And by the way, I know seven is a big number, so you're not going to walk out of here applying all seven of these immediately to your life, even though some of them are related to each other. So you may need to do some picking and choosing this morning, but let's get, let's get going here. Seven ways to keep the kingdom edge in view throughout all of your life. First of all, number one, cultivate a sense of God's presence. Cultivate a sense of God's presence. Here is where mowing the lawn can become a different kind of experience, right? 
I will actually use mowing. Mowing the lawn is a pretty boring thing to do. It relaxes me a little bit. But I will actually use that time sometimes to pray and worship and even sing. And you should do that. It's great. Because when you're mowing, guess what? Nobody can hear you sing. We sometimes look at that verse in, in, in 1 Thessalonians that says pray without ceasing, and we're like, yeah, right. We kind of laugh that one off, like how is that possible? But I will tell you, it is possible to, to train your mind to take advantage of some of those times that may be less mentally exhausting in your day. Manual labor, mowing, gardening, driving, sitting in a waiting room somewhere. To recognize God's presence, to think about Him, to speak to Him, and even to worship Him. And you never know. You never know. As you're mowing the edge of your, your lawn and you're trying not to throw clippings on your neighbor's pine needles, God may even give you an idea about how you can serve that neighbor or reach out to them with Christ's love for the sake of the gospel. And in that way, the kingdom can even break into these mundane tasks of everyday life. So cultivate a sense of God's presence. Second one's going to sound pretty big, but it's important. Do everything you do for the glory of God. Do everything for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Some of you might remember about 10 years ago a song by Stephen Curtis Chapman about this. The first verse was written to, I think, a stay-at-home mom. It goes like this. You're picking up toys on the living room floor for the 15th time today. Matching up socks, sweeping up lost Cheerios that got away. You put a baby on your hip, color on your lips, and head out the door. While I may not know you, I bet I know you wonder sometimes, does it matter at all? Well, let me remind you, it all matters, just as long as you do everything you do to the glory of the one who made you, because he made you to do every little thing that you do to bring a smile to his face. Tell the story of grace with every move that you make and every little thing you do. Colossians 3.17 says, it gets a little more specific, actually. It tells us to do everything in the name of Jesus in the name of Jesus, which means as Jesus' representative, as if he were doing it himself. As Casting Crown says in another song that I really like that's called Life Song, it says, I want to sign your name to the end of this day, knowing that my heart was true. What a great lyric. When, when you leave work at the end of the day, could you sign Jesus' name on your time card with a clear conscience? Would you be comfortable signing Jesus' name to the English paper that you're about to turn in? If you own a business, what if you had to put Jesus' name on the sign in the front of your building? Or on your tax return? Would Jesus be proud to be the co-owner of your Instagram account? Or would you need to do some deleting before that would be a serious consideration? When it comes to doing everyday things for God's glory, part of it is simply doing your best at everything that you do. But then part of it is the choices that you make about how you do these things and sometimes which things you decide to do and which things you, you don't decide to do. A kingdom businessman, a kingdom investor, probably shouldn't be investing in strip joints and gambling establishments, right? But are there other options that honor God and lift people up rather than tearing them down? Do you like to write? A kingdom writer should be writing in such a way that God's character is lifted up and not torn down. It may not all be kingdom work in the strictest sense, but it can still make you stand out in a good way 
for the glory of Jesus, whatever you're doing. That's number two. Number three is very related to that. Work and speak with integrity. Work and speak with integrity. A short definition of the word integrity is that you're the same person when nobody's watching as you are when everybody's watching. This is related to to what we've already said, but it also stands on its own. And two of the greatest examples of this, uh, and you can relate to them, I think, are the Old Testament characters of Joseph and Daniel. Joseph and Daniel, excellent, excellent examples. You may not know the whole story of these guys. I don't have time to tell it to you, but let me just give you some of the highlights. Both of these men were taken, young men, both of these young men were taken to a foreign country and forced into slavery. One of them had to go to Egypt, Joseph, and Daniel had to go to Babylon. Both of them managed to keep their faith in God despite this treatment. Both of them had easy opportunities for moral compromise, but both of them resisted. Both of them were mistreated or neglected by people that they worked with. And yet both of them served with diligence and excellence in less than ideal situations. And get this, as a result, both of them got to give witness in front of kings to the greatness of the one true God. Talk about everyday faithfulness leading to kingdom work. You will stand out in this world if you always tell the truth. You will stand out in this world if you refuse to cut corners. You will stand out if you don't join your co-workers or friends or fellow students in moral compromise. Here's a huge one. You will stand out in this world if you take responsibility for your own mistakes and don't blame others for your failures. There is a lot of room in today's world for kingdom people to distinguish themselves simply by being honest, ethical, fair, and accountable. Okay, number four. Stop complaining. That sounds kind of specific, right? But it's actually a verse from Philippians. It goes like this. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Why? So that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So this is the Apostle Paul saying flat out, you want to make a kingdom difference in your life? Here's how. Stop complaining. When I was back in college, my dad, who was a a surgeon, he, he got me a job as an orderly in the operating room at the hospital where he worked. And uh, this, is, this is the only time in my whole life I can ever remember this happening, this specifically, and, and receiving a comment or a question like this exactly. But one day, one of the scrub nurses came up to me in the break room, and she said, Paul, there's something different about you and your father. What is it? And my first thought was, go dad. You know, because she knew him a lot better than she knew me. But I was able to tell her that it was probably the fact that we were both followers of Jesus. Now, when I think back on the overall atmosphere of that particular workplace, I wonder if this not grumbling and complaining may have been what prompted the question. Christians really, really stand out if we don't grumble and complain and when we don't join in when everybody else seems to be doing it at work or anywhere else. If you think about it, what percentage of our small talk is just negativity? You know, about whatever, about the weather, about politics, about the boss. Probably a pretty large percentage. You want to throw a little salt and light into the equation? This is a big one. Complaining. Actually not complaining. All right, number five. Take care of the environment. 
take care of the environment. It is easy for some of us to dismiss the environmental movement because its loudest advocates are often people who seem to either worship the earth itself or at the very least they see human beings as a kind of cancer to be eradicated. But this does not mean that we need to run the other way just to distance ourselves from that kind of thinking. In fact, we can prove them wrong. When God put Adam in the garden, he told him to work it and to keep it. And the word keep is a word that means guard, preserve, or take care of something. Clearly, our responsibility toward creation is not just to use it or tame it or exploit it. It is to preserve and to protect it. And as products become more eco-friendly and as pollution and climate change and sustainability take center stage in this world, as you know, it's happening. I know there are some trade-offs here, but there are some legitimate and God-honoring ways that we kingdom people can catch up to our non-Christian friends who probably don't think we care at all about this issue. But we need to care more than most of us do because God made this. And our destiny is very much tied to this. Romans 8 tells us that. Number six, put God first in your finances. Um, We talked about this at length back a few weeks ago. We were looking at the Sermon on the Mount and got that part about treasure in heaven and the subsequent discussion of, of worry and anxiety. And we saw that a very direct application of seeking God's kingdom first is just the way we treat our money and possessions. Money is something that you and I deal with every day, and there is probably no more direct way to translate everyday life into kingdom progress than to be generous about supporting the work of the kingdom, both in your local church and in your community and throughout the world. Okay, ready for the last one? The last way to give that kingdom edge to your everyday supposedly secular life that is really sacred is to be ready to give an answer to be ready to give. This one comes directly from 1 Peter 3.15. He says, In your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. God calls each of us to some direct form of kingdom work in and through the body of Christ. He also calls each of us to share Christ with those around us and demonstrate his love whenever possible. We're going to talk a little bit more about that point next week. But he also calls us to tend to our specific station of life, whatever that is, living faithfully, living honorably, living responsibly and joyfully, and Peter says, full of hope. The hope that comes from knowing that because Jesus Christ has died in your place, you are now free. You are now a new person with a new power inside of you and new relationships and a new destiny. So will you possibly be able to live if that's that's really true? Can we live like that? Can we live out that truth as we do? Yes, we do the same things that everybody else does. But maybe we do them in a little different way. And I trust that today you've seen a few ways that you might be able to live your regular, everyday life in a more kingdom-oriented way. And although you may not often have someone come up to you and directly ask, hey, what's different about you? It is very likely that if you live with this kingdom edge, you will have multiple opportunities to engage in real kingdom work as you engage with those around you who don't yet know Christ. Because eventually, they will notice. Because your light cannot remain hidden forever. Let's pray.